So when was the last time you received a personal letter, a personal note from a family member or a friend? I'm not talking about like an email or a text message. I'm talking about a real handwritten, stamped, and mailed letter that showed up in your mailbox from a friend. When's the last time you received one of those? Okay, some of you, it looks like you've gotten one recently. Is it just me or is a personal letter still one of the coolest things on the planet? I absolutely love a personal letter. So I have a file at my home office. It's just simply called Encouraging Notes. And in it over the years, I have dropped in different letters that have been given to me, sent to me from maybe ministry heroes or mentors or friends or family members, um, people that I've pastored over the years, just things that are meaningful in my life. And I, I just kind of get them all together, and it's just a great place to go back and to think about the moments and think about the people and think about the story that connected lives together at that point. So I have a little box. I, I want to show you some things in my box. Now, a number of people ran into me before the service, and they thought this was me taking up a collection for Pastor Appreciation Month. And uh, now, I'll just leave this down front if anybody feels the need to drop something in after the service. But anyway, I've got a number of letters that I've kept over the years. This is a letter that was sent to me from my mom, July the 21st, 1998. Here's the story behind this letter. I had been asked to preach at this little church outside of Athens, Georgia, Erastus Christian Church. It was my third time of ever preaching to a crowd on a Sunday morning. And my mom knew I was nervous. She knew I was questioning things, and she took time to write out a note, put scripture in it, words of encouragement. I still have the note to this day. There's a story behind it. Now, you might be able to read the note and say, oh, I recognize the passage. I recognize the words of encouragement. But unless you know what I was going through in that moment and what I'd share with you, miss a whole lot of what's happening in that. I'll show you another little packet. This is a fun package. Y'all ready for this? This is a stack of letters that Bria sent to me back in our dating days 27 years ago. I know, that's sweet, isn't it? That's my babe over on the front row right there. Uh, you, you can tell Bria writes the letters because it's colorful all the way around. Like the mailman knew, okay, apparently this is from Bria right here. But anyway, this was a stack of letters that for us, we know the story. And that is she was working at a church camp up in Michigan. I was working in Savannah, Georgia. So for almost three months, our primary form of communication was writing back and forth multiple letters every single week. So there's stories behind it. I can't tell y'all all the stories. Y'all not old enough for that. I'm just tuck this right back away right here. So anyway, letters, they have meaning behind them. In other words, here's the thought. Letters are written pieces of a bigger story. If you don't know the story, you get glimpses of things, but you still miss some major connections. So today, we are going to start a verse-by-verse -verse study of the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to believers in Ephesus. This is a letter that 
is filled with unbelievable spiritual truths. But I need you to think about this letter the same way that you would if somebody were to write a letter to Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia, 2022. That, that is, there's going to be a context. There, there's going to be an understanding. There's going to be things that the writer and the recipients are going to understand because they're a part of the bigger story. So that's exactly what's taking place in this particular letter. Inside of six chapters, he addresses the inheritance that we have in Christ, the path to spiritual maturity, the design of God's church, God's plan for marriage, the realities of spiritual warfare. So just pause there for just a moment. If he's writing to the people about the realities of spiritual warfare, what do you think they're going through? Spiritual warfare. If he's writing to them and talking about God's design for the church, what do you think they're wrestling with? There's some issues of design within the church. Like, there's reasons behind why he's writing what he's doing. This is a unique letter in the sense that you have unbelievably practical truths, like growth in Christ and strengthening relationships, and yet they are sitting side by side with some of the most difficult concepts in the Word of God, like the Trinitarian nature of God and predestination. And it all is in this beautiful, harmonious path. It is beautiful the way that the Word of God helps take people into deep truths as well as practical truths. So Ephesians, it gains titles like the Believer's Bank or the Christian's Checkbook or the treasure house of the Bible. Uh, John Mackey, former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, called it the greatest, maturest, and most relevant of Paul's writings. English poet Samuel Coleridge said, it is the divinest composition of man, end of quote. Now, as wonderful as those accolades are, and I think they're great, if we don't know the story, we're going to miss a whole lot of that substance. So this evening, I'm going to do my best to start the process of bringing everybody into the story, helping you understand what was happening in the church with believers at Ephesus 2,000 years ago, why he's writing, what he's writing about, the themes of the letter. Uh, one of the things I want you to walk away with today is when we get into the themes that are behind this particular book, I, I want to make sure that you have them in your notes that they're written down. If you will notice the themes, I'm going to share them with you tonight. If you know the themes, you can recognize those themes once it's showing up in the text itself. If you don't know that there's a theme, it's like, oh, that's spiritual truth and spiritual information and great stuff and practical truths, but you miss this bigger picture of what it is that he is trying to accomplish. So tonight, I invite you to go with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter number one. We'll be in verses one and two. I am speaking this evening simply on the subject of the story at Ephesus. The story at Ephesus. Here's what the text says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may you pull us into your word tonight. God, help us to see the story that's taking place and then be able to 
go across the interpretational bridge and understand how the truths back then are applied in the context that we walk in today. In Jesus' name, amen. So introductions are important for the development as well as the understanding of any story. So whether or not a story begins with once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or maybe as it begins, in the beginning, God created, there's something that's happening in an introduction that is kicking a story into movement. And that's exactly what we have right here in the introduction that is given by the Apostle Paul. Um, he gives a very short introduction, probably one of the smallest bios you're going to find anywhere. It basically has two points. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he is in that position by the will of God. That's what he tells you. And by the way, that's enough for us to walk away with. We're going to unpack why that is so significant. Now, let me tell you the reason we take some time to sit into the introduction of a particular book. And I recognize as Christians, we're in a hurry, and we want to get into those deep theological truths. We want to jump into that spiritual warfare. We want to enjoy what God's design for marriage is all about. So we're almost like, okay, introduction, introduction, let's get into the spiritual stuff. And we look at this and we're like, okay, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's good. It's a position. Maybe he gets a wonderful hat out of this. I don't know what he gets, but let's get into the other stuff. Let's jump into those deep truths. As Christians in 2022, we read a bio in order to go through it to get to the good stuff on the other side. For them, 2,000 years ago, the bio was what they needed to define the stuff as good. They needed to know something about who was writing. They needed to understand their position to speak in. So in this section, simply by saying that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, there are three ideas that would resonate with the original audience. That is, he belonged to Christ. First of those is he belonged to Christ. His life was not his own to do with as he pleased. He was a possession of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. The second of those is he was sent out by Christ. Uh, that word apostle means sent out. It describes a person who was sent out on behalf of another with the message of that other individual. And then also he had authority from Christ. Now, the reason this is important is because in that culture, the Sanhedrin was the supreme court for the Jews. That is, anything that took place in Jewish life and religious life and ceremonial life, the Sanhedrin was that supreme court. Whatever they said went. They were the ultimate authority with the people. So whenever the Sanhedrin would come to a decision, that decision was given to somebody who was called an apostle of the Sanhedrin, and it was their responsibility to get the message out to other people and to ensure that the decision was carried out. They were apostles of the Sanhedrin. Now, Paul is making it very clear from the very beginning, he is not an apostle of the Sanhedrin. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
His claims are very clear. He is laying the foundation for why they need to listen to anything that he has to say. He is not coming to them as a pastor. He is not coming to them as a missionary. He is not coming to them as Paul the tent maker. He is coming to them as Christ apostle spreading Christ's message and under Christ's authority. That's the reason the church would need to listen. Now, based upon Acts chapter 1, we find that there were at least two prerequisites for somebody being an apostle of Christ. That is, you must have been an eyewitness to the ministry of Christ. And number two, you must have been chosen by the risen Christ for that particular office. Now, this word apostle had a primary and then also it had a wider usage. It was used primarily of the original 12 disciples. They were chosen to lay the foundation for the early church and to be the channels that God used in order to communicate and to complete the revelation of his word. They were given power to perform miracles and they were able to cast out demons in order to show that they had divine authority that had been given them by God himself. Now, in a wider usage, the word apostle was also used of men like Barnabas, Acts chapter 14, Silas and Timothy, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, as well as other outstanding leaders, just group of leaders as a whole, in Romans chapter number 16. Now, here's the difference between those two. Those individuals in that secondary usage were referred to as apostles of the churches, This group and the original 12 were apostles of Jesus Christ. Now, except for Judas, there is no New Testament record of any of those apostles in a primary or a wider sense being replaced after they died, with the exception of Judas. Now, if you'll remember back over in the beginning of of Acts, the people wanted to replace it. The, the other 11 said, we need to find a replacement. And they chose Matthias as a 12th replacement. Now, the jury is still out somewhat on whether or not that was God's choice or man's choice. What I can say is after that moment, you don't ever see his name mentioned again. So I don't know if the jury is really out, but it seems as though it's The Apostle Paul was the one who was just chosen by Christ on the road to Damascus as that replacement. You you watch his story unfold and his ministry unfold. So the second part of this is the position of the Apostle was established by Christ for a select group of people for a specific period of time. Now, after sharing that he is an Apostle of Jesus Christ, he makes another important claim. And that is, he is not a self-appointed apostle. We need to bring that up for just a moment. There's a lot of self-appointed apostles who are roaming around the current world. And they are claiming authority and claiming position that I don't necessarily think is theirs to claim. Now, it's been said before that there is a leadership style of that of an apostle. That is somebody who leads leaders. And I can maybe get somewhat into, I just don't like mixing my language right there. I want to make sure that the language stays with its original design. And in this, you find that these are people that are chosen by Jesus specifically for a time, specifically for a task. Now, the fact that he is not a self-appointed Apostle is important. He didn't sign up for it. 
He didn't assume it. He wasn't voted in. And for that matter, he can't be voted out. It doesn't matter if we like or dislike the Apostle Paul's writings. He is an apostle by choice of God himself. Second part of verse number one provides the setting and the audience for this letter. It says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Oh, wow, that is a packed word. Faith, oh, not only saints, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, it is a little bit unclear in some ways as to whether or not the Apostle Paul was writing just to believers in Ephesus or if he was writing to believers in that region of which Ephesus is just the largest of those communities, therefore, that was the one that was primarily targeted. All, all we know is from the earliest time as far as the first and second century, this is a letter that is connected to the Ephesian believers. So let's talk for just a moment about the city of Ephesus. Again, if we understand the story, it's going to help us understand everything going on in the letter. So imagine once again what it would be like if somebody wrote a letter to the Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. And there is a setting in Albany, Georgia. There is a scene. There are challenges within our city. There are things that we face. This is the good life city. Apparently, that's what I found. It's, it's written on a lot of the marketing around town. There are things unique to this city that also would be manifested in something that would be important within that letter. So Ephesus was a large commercial city with about 350,000 residents. Now, while many people connect the city of Corinth with corruption, all I can say is Ephesus would rival anything that Corinth had to offer. It was known as the filth capital of the Roman world. Now, much of that reputation came from the great temple of Diana, also known as Artemis. That is, it's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But its architecture was not exactly why many people would show up for worship, specifically men. The temple also was staffed with hundreds of priestesses of Diana who fulfilled the role as sacred prostitutes. It got quiet in here. Their services were offered and a consummation of worship. Could you imagine that? Now, now, here's one of the reasons it's important to know history. Sometimes we look at our world and we're like, it's never been this bad before. Oh, listen, it might not have been bad in what you've seen before, but the world has seen some deep depravity over the years. When you go back and you look at what the cities were like and, and what was happening 2,000 years ago. And you're going to hear more in just a moment. There was a lot of depravity going on back then as well. So this is a place where along with the sexual indulgences within the temple, people could also indulge their lust for blood. Ephesus boasted of the largest of all the Greek open-air theaters. That It would seat 25,000 people. It was a stadium that was used in chariot races and fights and battles with wild animals. So blood and brutality and broken bodies was simply a part of the everyday scene in Ephesus. Now, even with all of its sin and its corruption and its problems, it was a strategic city for the gospel. It was a large seaport. 
It had a chief communication point and a commercial link between Rome as well as the east. Uh, Merchants would flock into the city. People from every nation and ethnic group would call Ephesus their home. It was where the east and the west merged together. And the Apostle Paul, he was brilliant in his understanding of this. And a lot of that is him being led by the Spirit of God as to what he's doing. But he understood the need for making sure gospel seeds are planted in urban cities. Now let me pause there for just a moment. One of the initiatives that has come out of the North American Mission Board is what's been referred to as Send Cities, S-E-N-D, Send Cities. And these are large metropolitan cities in North America that are many times under church. Many times there's less than five, seven, eight percent of the entire church population, our entire population of the city is somehow connected with an evangelical church. Very lost communities. And a part of what the North American Mission Board has been doing is targeting these major cities to plant churches and start new works. And in fact, Sherwood has taken up a part of that vision. And part of what Michael Catt shared is to put a church in each of the 32 different sin cities. And I praise God for that. In fact, this upcoming next year, we are going to complete the rest of the 32 cities in this upcoming year. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. That's a good place to clap. Yes. Okay, here's why it's so important to make sure we're planting healthy churches in major metropolitan cities. By 2050, almost 70% of the world's population is going to be in one of those large cities. By 2050, that's not too far away. If we're talking about reaching the world, we have to have healthy, gospel-centered churches in these major cities. It's in those major cities that people come in from all around the world, and it's a beautiful thing because when people come in, many times they don't stay there long. It might be a year or two years, and they come in, and the gospel can change their life, and then they go back to another point somewhere around the world. That's what the city of Ephesus was. It was a place where the east and the west came together. It's people from around the world, different ethnic ethnicities, different nationalities are coming in. And the apostle Paul looks at this filthy, sinful, depraved city. And he's like, that's a great place for the gospel. And it is. The gospel is important everywhere. But when the gospel takes root in some of these cities, it has a natural funnel to be able to send people out to the ends of the earth. So Paul understood the importance of this. On his second missionary journey, he came to the city of Ephesus to preach the gospel. And by the grace of God, a faithful church was planted in that city. Now, the church was established around A.D. 53. This letter was written somewhere between A.D. 60 and A.D. 62. When Paul's letter showed up at this point, it was probably seven to nine years after the church was established. His name alone, commanded respect. Not only did he start the church, but for many of those in the church, he led them to faith in Christ. He he told believers in Corinthians or in Corinth, he told the believers that they may have 10,000 teachers in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. 
Okay, in this situation, we all have a biological father by birth, and if you're a Christian, you have a heavenly father. But for many of them, he was their spiritual father. He was the one who led them to faith in Christ. So when he looks at them and they look back at him, there is a great connection. There is a wonderful camaraderie between the two. He didn't have to do what he did in the the book of Galatians when he has to spend three chapters defending his apostolic credentials. That's not the same thing here. They knew him. They trusted him. They respected him. Now, we have to keep in mind exactly who they are. It's believers in Corinth, or believers in Ephesus. He is not talking to the city of Ephesus as a whole. He is not talking to spiritual seekers in Ephesus. He is talking to Christians, believers in Ephesus. In fact, to make sure that everybody knows exactly who he's talking about, he defines Christians with three very specific terms, three very specific ways. Uh, The great commentator, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he defined this as the qualities, here it is, that are the irreducible minimum of what constitutes a Christian. Now, these are beautiful. And and you might say, Paul, I know I'm a Christian. That's not my concern. But there's a lot of times that we're concerned about friends or family members because they made a profession of faith 25 years ago, but nothing actually changed in their life. And we're saying, are they a Christian? Are they not a Christian? Did you know it's really good for us to look in the Bible and say, what is a Christian? Not culturally, what do we think a Christian is, but let's let the Word of God define what is a Christian. And he gives the irreducible minimum of what is a Christian. Here's the first part. Christians are saints. Christians are saints. He says, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Now, the idea of being a saint is different than what many people have come to mind when they think of sainthood. And a lot of that is because of the traditions that come out of Roman Catholicism. When somebody is referred to as a saint in Catholicism, there's a whole process that people have gone through. That is usually somebody has been chosen and their name comes before an ecclesiastical board for a process. And they, they check the person. They vet the person. They, they have to make sure this individual has at least one verified miracle that is somehow attached to their name. And after they go through this entire process, if they are seen to be of saintly status, if they're seen to be somebody who is trusted and somebody who they could put the title of saint on, they're given that title. But because of that, There's this idea that to be a saint means you are a really, really, really good, holy, stand above all the rest type of a person. That's not what this is talking about here. When it refers to the saints who are at Ephesus, it's talking about sainthood in the sense of those who are the holy ones who are called out. In the Old Testament, this idea of holiness is connected with the tabernacle, with the temple, with the Sabbath, with the people. They are called holy, and they are set apart by God and for God. Uh, People are not considered saints because of their personal merit. They are saints because they have been called out by God, and they have been set aside for God. Every Christian 
is a saint. Every Christian has been called out. We have been set apart. We have been set apart in nature, set apart in loyalties, set apart in agenda, and set apart by kingdom. Christians are those who have been called out and set apart. Second part, Christians are faithful. You might say, oh, Paul, you don't know who I know. Uh, let the word of God define how we see Christians, not how Christians act define how we read the word of God. Christians are faithful. Let me say from the beginning, doesn't mean perfect, doesn't mean we never mess up, but Christians are faithful. In fact, the words that we find here, it says, to those who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, there's, there's two parts of that statement. The primary meaning of the word faithful is exercising faith. A Christian is somebody who has heard the gospel message and they have exercised faith in, believing in, entrusting themselves to the gospel message. The second part of the meaning of the word faithful is to continue in faith. That is, they, they keep on keeping the faith. That, that involves the idea of the perseverance of the saints. This is why this is so important. If you're talking about faithfulness in that side of things, it's not that a person is perfect. It means that they just keep showing up tomorrow and following Jesus. They mess up sometimes, but tomorrow morning, they're going to bring their imperfections before the cross, and they're going to keep following him. There's going to be days that they do really well, and they submit in humility before God, and they continue to follow him. 20 years down the road, they're still following him. There is a faithfulness in their pursuit of Christ. Here's the third piece. Christians are in Christ. Now, we are going to expound on this idea for months to come. I'm telling you, this piece, this is why the title of our entire series is In Christ. Everything that you're going to be seeing as you work your way through Ephesians, it is in Christ, in him, in the beloved. In fact, Curtis has been going through the book of Ephesians for over six years right now. They've not finished it yet. Now, he's threatened them. He's going to go back and start again since we're starting here tonight. But anyway, no, I'm just kidding. Anyway, this is one of those books where the truths are deep. They're powerful. But it comes back to the concept of being in Christ. Now, while we're going to unpack it for months to come, here's the basic idea. Being in Christ is a statement of oneness. Being in Christ is a statement of oneness. It describes someone who is joined to Christ in such a unity that what's true of him is also true of us. In Christ is going to be a concept that we unpack in huge ways. As a Christian, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Now, this concept can be difficult for a lot of people to understand because we're like, what does it mean for a person to be in Christ? So scripture gives us a number of analogies to help us understand. That is the union of a man and a woman in marriage where two become one. That is a, a unity of oneness. Then there's the union of the vine and the branches. Our lives converge together in such a way as we abide in him. There is a unity and a oneness that happens. There is a union of the head and the body. They are inextricably bound together. There is a oneness that happens between the two. Whether we understand in Christ truth or not, our union in Christ is the very essence 
of the gospel. When you put these pieces together, you have an incredible definition of a Christian. Let me tell you real fast what a Christian is not. A Christian is not somebody who shows up at church. A Christian should show up at church, but you can be lost and show up at church. A Christian is not somebody who claims the title because they have an affiliation for the traditions of Christianity. A Christian is not someone who is prayed a prayer, but their life has never been changed. You need to bring all of the irreducible minimum pieces of what it means to be a Christian and bring that into our definition. A Christian is someone who is set apart by God, responding in faith to the gospel, remaining faithful to the process, and whose life is found in Christ. That incorporates the three pieces, the irreducible minimum of what it means to be a Christian. Someone set apart by God, responding in faith to the gospel, remaining faithful in the process, and whose life has been found in Christ. So at this point, we know the author, we know the setting, and we know the audience. We're going to finish out with the purpose. Why did Paul write this letter to this group at that time under that set of circumstances? Well, the primary purpose is found in the themes of the letter. There's going to be three that I'm going to give you. They're they're very fast, but I, I want you to have those. And as you read this letter, I want you to think about those themes because everything is coming back to these big ideas. The first is all Christians are united together in the body of Christ. All Christians are united together in the body of Christ. At the end of the day, there's not five churches. There's not 50 churches. There's not 50 million churches. There's one church. A part of the beauty of the bride is displayed in the diversity of its members. There is one church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. So from the introduction alone, you can begin to see how Paul is bringing people together in this idea of unity and oneness. Uh, One of the subtle but very distinct ways he does it is with two very small words in the beginning. The word at and the word in. He wrote to the church at Ephesus, but they are in Christ. One's location, the other's position in Christ. We are a part of the church at Albany, but we are in Christ. You might have family members who are part of the church at Atlanta, but if they know Jesus as we know Jesus, they are in Christ. Okay, the idea here is the difference of our location should not detract from the unity of our bond. It's not where you serve, it's who you serve. The second place that you can see Paul uniting the body together is in his introduction, and it's through his salutation. He says in verse number two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the customary Greek salutation. And peace is the regular Jewish salutation. He brings both of those. There's something for the Jew. There's something for the Gentile. Uh, it, It helps us understand that salvation is not only for one group. 
It's not that just the Jews have salvation. It's not that just the Gentiles or the Greeks understand grace. It is that the, the footing at the bottom of the cross is level. He's bringing all together. It is Jew and Gentile all together. Then he also goes on to say, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's an inclusive word. It's bringing everybody in together. Remember, you can only bring them all in together if the audience are believers. Not just anybody who's attending, but he said, we're together. doesn't matter where you came from. If you are in Christ, this is God, our Father. We're a part of the same family. So theme number two is all Christians have everything they need in Christ. Now, you might not feel like that all the time. It might not seem like that all the time. But we have everything we need in Christ. And if we don't, it's not because it's not there. It's because we don't know how to access what we already have. This text is so clear. It says, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have everything we need in Christ. Now, part of the Apostle Paul's concern for the believers in Ephesus is although they were spiritually rich, they were living like spiritual paupers. They were acting as though they they didn't have enough. By the way, same could be true for Christians in 2022. We, we are no less spiritually wealthy today than what that group was 2,000 years ago. We still have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So much of what we're going to get into here is about our possessions in Christ and our position in Christ. The position is what helps us understand the possessions. But now that we're in Christ, this is what it looks like to be so in unity with him, in such oneness with him, that what is true of him is also true of us. So he's writing to a group who, although they were spiritually rich, they were acting like they had nothing. There's a a story of a lady, her name is Hetty Green. She has gone down in history in some ways, and maybe a way that a lot of people would not like to go down in history. She has been referred to as America's greatest miser. Uh, When she died in 1916, Hetty left an estate of over $100 million. Incredibly wealthy, but she ate cold oatmeal every day because it cost her money to heat it up. Her son suffered a leg amputation because she delayed his treatment for so long trying to find a free clinic. It said she hastened her own death because she died of a stroke. She hastened her own death because she was passionately describing the merits of skim milk. She is a woman with unbelievable wealth, and she lived as though she had nothing. Christians deal with the same thing. We have unbelievable wealth, and yet we act like we got nothing. We pray like we've got nothing. We serve like we've got nothing. Did you know that God, I've said it many times, God often responds in proportion to how we seek him. And many times, here's what Christians do. 
We look at what we have in our hands and say, God, I can't do much with this, so I'm only going to serve you this far. When a believer understands what they have in Christ, this unbelievable wealth, they might not see it in their hands, but when they understand it by faith, they say, God, if that's what you've called me to, I'm going to trust that you know how to get the resources at the right time. You step out in faith. You engage in other things because you're not worried about what's in your account. You're not worried about what's happening in your abilities. Here's a piece that my mom reminded me of in that letter. When I was a kid, I was in speech classes because I have a speech impediment. There's words I couldn't say. I spent month after month sitting in this class with a special ed teacher teaching me how to get words out of my mouth. Now, what if as a child, I looked and said, I can't speak so God could never use me like this? Listen, God has every ability to do in and through you exactly what he desires for your life. Do not put limitations upon what God can do with your life and through your life and in your life because you see yourself as a spiritual pauper. If you are in Christ, you are positioned in him and the possessions that you have in him are unfathomable. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is going to be a good book. A good book? Okay, so here is our final section. Here's our final theme. All Christians are called to live out these spiritual truths for the glory of the Father, the building up of the body, and the advancement of God's kingdom. All Christians are called to live out these spiritual truths. Why do I even bring that up as a theme? It's because he's constantly talking about the unity. He's referring to the body all the way through. It's important because these are not truths for really spiritual Christians. It's not that just some Christians need these truths. All Christians need these truths. It's not that just some are called to live it out. All are called to live it out. It's not that just some are about the building of the kingdom. All are called to be about the kingdom. It's for all believers. God has designed the Christian experience so that we are interconnected and the journey is to be taken together. We need each other. Each individual has a part to play in order for the whole body to function properly. Every part is not the same, but every part is necessary for the development and the health of the body of Christ. God has gifted you and placed you in a very specific body. Did you know God has things he wants to do in and through you in this body that nobody else around you is called to do the same things he's called you to do in the same way, with the same gifts, with the same passion. He has uniquely gifted you in a way that it is connected to the body for the advancement of the kingdom. I am excited about us studying this letter together. The teachings, I'm going to tell you from the very beginning, will not be easy. You all are getting used to that. Some people came up and they're like, Paul, that was a tough message this morning. I was like, I thought it was a nice message this morning. All I can say is there's some tough teachings that we're going to get into. Uh, This is going to be a study that is going to challenge us to live it out spiritually every day. In some ways, this is the Everest of practical Christianity. 
There are going to be some passages that we get into that I'm going to tell you from the beginning. We're just going to have to simply submit to God and say, God, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I trust you anyway. And that's okay. There's going to be some passages that are going to come so alive in your heart that you're going to wonder how it is that you've been a Christian for so long and you've never seen it before. There's no doubt in my mind God has some very specific things he wants to do in this church at this time through this study. I'm excited about us taking the journey together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact it is just as relevant, just as powerful today as when it was written. So, Lord, we ask from the very beginning of this journey, God, would you allow our hearts our minds, to just be submitted to you in the process. The things we don't understand, Lord, may we just keep walking. Just in faithfulness, just keep walking. And trust that in time you make those things clear. God, we're asking you to do something great as we study the word and rely on your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you this next week.